So hey guys, welcome back. We have another one for you. And this is a first of first. We actually have two guests on the phone and uh, two writers and historians and researchers. We have Jay Buckley uh, and Jeffrey Noakes, and we're going to get their story. Is that right? Noakes? Jeffrey Noakes? And, yep, right. uh, and we're going to get their story and find out about them. They've written a book that uh, you can find on Amazon. It's called Great Plains uh, Forts. And you can find it on Amazon or and booksellers near you. Now, if you go on Amazon, it's selling for $17.95. It's 256 pages through Bison Books. This is a, the publisher, but University of Nebraska Press. Um, and Sarah, Sarah Key, she's awesome. And uh, she helped put this together. Again, thank you, Sarah Key and everybody at University of Nebraska Press. Again, you can find it at Amazon and booksellers near you on Amazon. If you're in Europe, Australia, anywhere outside the United States, I urge I urge folks to buy on Amazon because it reduces the shipping cost and gets you the book right to your door. And you're going to want to get this one because it's got a lot of information in it. Um, it's about the Great Plains of the Forts from Canada all the way down to Texas. But before we get into the podcast, I want to thank my friends at the Tombstone Epitaph, one of Arizona's longest-running newspapers. You can find them at tombstoneepitaph.com. Eric and Mark are doing a great job bringing uh, Wild West history right to your door in a newspaper format. Who doesn't love a newspaper? You can bring it with you when you're traveling or at the office or wherever you're wherever you're going. You can bring the Tombstone Epitaph with you in a newspaper. And again, subscribe at tombstoneepitaph.com. And my second family at the Wild West History Association at wildwesthistory.org. 2024 is going to be our roundup at Fort Smith, Arkansas. And we're going to want to see you there. Um, we got a lot of stuff going on, and I'd love to see you at Fort Smith. Uh, if you want to join and become a member, you can go to wildwesthistory.org. And if you want to find us on social media, we'd love to see you there on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, uh, our Facebook page. We'd love you to, to see over there. It doesn't cost a thing to follow and start learning the actual truth with true provenance, uh, Wild West History. And that's wildwesthistory.org. Uh, these guys came to me through uh, Sarah Key, and I happened to see their photo of the book, and I thought, oh, my God, Great Plains, and I want to connect with these guys. And Sarah put us together, and we started the email format, and, uh, and here they are. Welcome, gentlemen. How are you? Wonderful. Wonderful? I'm Good doing great. Thank you. All right. So... Jay and Jeff have got an insane background. Um, we're going to hear a little bit right now about them. Jay, what is what is your background? Spend a little little bit of time and tell us about you. Okay. Well, I grew up in Wyoming, um, very near Fort Bridger, which is not on the plains, but it definitely got me interested in forts. And uh, my mother was a librarian, and my father was a rancher, and between the love of books and the love of the outdoors, I was drawn to Western history. Uh, I went to Brigham Young University for my undergraduate degree, and one of the classes I took was by a fellow named Fred Gowans, and uh, he would come in and had a cowboy hat and cowboy boots, and he would jump up on the table and start telling stories, and I'm like, wow, this 
this is pretty cool. So I started visiting with him and said, you know, how do I get into this business? I want to tell stories and read stories and write stories. And so um, he helped me with my master's degree at BYU. And then I went to the University of Nebraska, Lincoln, did my PhD. Um, and it just so happened that the year I finished my dissertation um, was the year he retired at BYU. And so I applied and was able to receive that position and been trying to fill his boots ever since. So that's a little background on me. Awesome. So then the same question, uh, Jeff, tell us a little bit about you. Cause I looked at your background and I couldn't even, I would spend a day reading it cause you're, you're a very well studied man. <laughs> My background's really different from Jay's. He, he's a great historian. I, I, dabble in history but my my research generally focuses on classroom research i was a public school teacher for 17 years kind of a late bloomer got my phd later in life and uh, i've been at brigham young university now for um about about that same amount of time 17 years in the history department so i'm a professor in the history department but my focus is on teaching and learning primarily i've taught utah history and i'm lived in the West my whole life. And so I've been interested in Western history, but I just see the value of history and think that it's so important that young people need to learn history. And especially, I think there's some opportunities to prepare young people for civic engagement as they're studying history and developing skills in historical thinking. Um, a few years ago, Jay invited me to work with him on some history books. So most of my research and most of my writing has been related to pedagogy or teaching. And so, uh, and these books that he invited me to work with him on were history books, uh, explorers of the American West. And I found out that I really love to write and research about uh, history kinds of topics, even more than I like to do the classroom research and write about teaching. So Jay and I have worked together on a couple of projects since then. And, and I appreciate his talents. He's a great historian and, and he brings me along uh, to help how I can. So yeah, it's been great working with him. So with the two of you on the phone together, is that, did you know each other and previously, or did you meet through working together at BYU? Well, we we met together at BYU, um, but we've also collaborated in a number of things, not just the, the three books we've done together, but also um, there's an organization in Utah called Driven to Teach, oh. sponsored by the Larry H. Miller, Larry and Gail Miller Foundation and Zions Bank. And they pay for K-12 teachers to go on field studies with professors. And so Jeff and I take K through 12 teachers around the country every summer to visit historical sites and learn about the history that happened there so that they can be excited about it and teach it in their classrooms. So that's been a really fun collaboration as well. So not only do we get to teach together, but we also get to write together. So I feel blessed to be part of his life. Wow. that I didn't expect that. That is amazing. Um, 
that caught me off guard. I wasn't expect that. I was expecting to say, yeah, we met at In-N-Out and we went to In-N-Out Burger and <laughs> we looked across each other and we're like, dude, what's up? Um, so then you had the Great Plains book. You've been doing books together. So then what was the decision? Because there was the Great Plains series like Bison and Weather and stuff. And then how did you get into the Great Plains? How was the decision made? Was it both of you or Jay? Was it you that said, hey, here's this Great Plains series through Bison Publishing? Or did they reach out to you? How did that work out? Jay, can you tell about that? Sure. When I was at the University of Nebraska as a graduate student, I worked at the Center for Great Plains Studies uh, with John Wonder and Jim Steubendick. They were the directors while I was there. And so I became really closely affiliated with that center and all of the staff. And, mm-hmm. um, of course, they have a, a great connection with the University of Nebraska Press. And <clears throat> a few years ago, um, Rick Edwards, the new director of the center, who's you now emeritus, um, called me up and said, we would like you to be part of this Great Plains series. Is there something that that you would going to contribute to it and so um, we talked about some possibilities of some different ideas and and Great Plains Force was the one that stuck when we were uh, talking about all the things and so um, I started working on that pre-COVID and and then kind of got delayed on doing some other book projects at the same time and so then I asked Jeff if he wanted to come on as a co-author with me to helped me and and he agreed and it's it was great because um i like to collaborate with people especially if they're good and if they can meet deadlines <laughs> and jeff can do both he's he's a skilled writer he can keep me grounded and and keep pushing forward so that we can can meet our deadlines and so um we just um, talked through it during the, the covid epidemic and um rick was really excited about the things that we presented and um, we're so happy that it was published this year. So Jeff, question for you then. Jay comes to you, you guys decide to write this book, Great Plains series. What was the beginning process for it? Did you did you focus on one fort and then it expanded or did you research all the forts first? Like how, because most people, when they write a book, there's a specific thing. There's a person, there's a place, and they can follow that person through history on a timeline, right? It's, it's, sometimes it's kind of simple. They, they'll, they'll go down through archives and records, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But your book focuses on the great, on the forts, and there's so many. How did that come about? How did your research, Jeff, how did it come about that you put all these together and began the research of each one? How how did that happen? Yeah, well, Jay and I brainstormed together first and thought about big themes that we might have chapters dedicated to. And we laid out the themes. We knew that the fur trade was going to be one of the themes and that's Jay's specialty. And so, you know, he was going to be great with that. And 
we thought military forts would probably be another big theme. So we didn't really start with any particular person or any particular fort, but we thought through themes first. And then as we started to flesh out our ideas related to those big themes, we realized that uh, we hadn't considered uh, Native American fortifications. And so Jay uh, decided we talked together and decided let's add a chapter to on Native American fortifications. And so it was really kind of with a, with a topic that big. I think it was smarter for us to break it down and say, what would our chapters look like? And then we could dive into those chapters and, and uh, figure out which specific forts of all the hundreds of forts uh, that we could talk about. And then we, we didn't want to leave any of the forts out. And so we added a site guide as the final chapter where we just very briefly mention all of the forts that we've been able to find evidence of um, in each one of the Canadian provinces and states of the Canadian prairies and the Great Plains. So that's kind of the process we went through as we're early on trying to figure out what we were going to do with this topic. But sticking with you on that, then on the research, was most of it done online or did were you two very hands-on and say, road trip, and we're going to go out and start trying to find these locations? Well, one of the things I did right away is we'd worked together uh, fairly recently on another book that was called uh, Explorers of the American West. And in that book, we went through the journals of, of several of the explorers, people that kept records as they were exploring the West. And so I thought it'd be fun to, to look through journals of people who were associated with forts and see if I could find, or we could find some great stories, uh, that those people wrote about their experiences in forts. And one of the women that we'd written about in the Explorers of the American West was Susan McGoffin. And she had just a, a horrific experience at Bent's Fort where she had, she miscarried a, a baby. And, and so I thought I would, we wanted to include women in the, in the story of the forts as well. And so we, we, uh, talked about her experiences at Ben's Fort there and that. But so that was, we weren't hands-on as far as traveling to the forts, but we were very hands-on as far as looking at the records and primary sources that were written about people who'd had experiences in the, the forts, because we definitely wanted to include those kinds of stories in the, in the book. So then Jay, because Jeff brings up the Susan McGoffin, because I actually read that part twice. <laughs> Let, because it's 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 like people today don't understand what people in that period went through in their life like I, I'll see posts on Facebook and Instagram and social media and they'll say oh my gosh I, I was born to live in the 1800s I would love to go and live there right now well if you went to live there right now you'd find out that it was it was a hard life it was not just yeah, it was simple in some ways, but at the same time, it was a it's a difficult struggle to live then. And Susan McGoffin is an example of that. Can you tell her story, Jeff? Can you real quickly tell because how she ended up at Bent's Fort, marriage, marriage a man who was older than her, taken away from 
the things in life that she had, the city life. Can you tell that story? Sure. Yeah. So Susan McGoffin was, uh, she was a young woman, 18 years old. She met and married Samuel McGoffin, who was, uh, I think, 25 years older than her, 27 years older than her mm-hmm. uh, when she was 18 years old. He had already uh, gained a fortune by traveling and trading on the Santa Fe Trail. And so the the Santa Fe Trail was is was not really a pioneer trail. It was a merchant trail. And Samuel Goffin was merchant. And so uh, they would uh, buy wagons in uh, Missouri, load them up with goods that would be in demand in uh, Santa Fe. And then they would travel on the Santa Fe Trail uh, through – uh, to, anyway, they traveled to Santa Fe, and then once they got there, they would sell their wagons and their and all of the goods that they brought. They would purchase mules, and then they would take mules back up the Santa Fe Trail back to Franklin, Missouri. They'd sell those mules, buy wagons and goods, and they'd just move back and forth along that trail. So after their honey honeymoon, Susan and... Samuel went to, uh, uh, they outfitted a caravan and Samuel purchased a carriage for Susan and they started out on the, the trail towards Santa Fe. And Susan kept a journal where she wrote day by day and she was really romantic. Her journal is an absolute joy to read. Uh, as she talks about her travel on the Santa Fe Trail. She was 18 and she was really romantic. She called herself a wandering princess of the prairie. And just were, and she had a servant that was caring for her. And she writes about her interaction with the people of Mexico that she met. She was a, a little hesitant at first to eat their food and, and kind of look down on them, but it's really a joy to read her journal. And she, she just develops this love for the, the people that she met. Well, in her journal, proper women didn't really talk about pregnancy, but you can, if you read between the lines, you can see that here that she's pregnant and she suffered a fall at some point along the trail through one of the rougher stretches. And after that fall, she really started to worry about her baby. And it wasn't long after that, that the caravan pulled into Bent's Fort and Bent's Fort was really one of the great forts of the plains. It was large and had most of the comforts that you could find in any place back East. There was a, there were medical staff on hand. And so one of those doctors helped her and cared for her as she delivered a stillborn baby and she was just heartbroken by the loss of her baby. And to make matters worse, on that same day, a Native American woman came to the fort and delivered a healthy baby. And that tells you a little bit about the nature of these forts. They were gathering places for not just uh, Americans or Anglo uh, or French or Mexican trapper, trappers. They were gathering places for indigenous people and really frontier locations where lots of different groups of people came together. But anyway, Susan McGoffin delivered that the stillborn baby and she 
recovered. She didn't have much time to recover. They were back on the trail and made her way to uh, Santa Fe and, and then and back. And she didn't live to be very old, but but her her journal is. I would highly recommend that. Is just it's a really amazing uh, story that she tells, and you just fall in love with her because she puts so much of herself into the the story. Can you share with us though the, the because now I wrote the journal down like I want to read the journal. Is there a title to it? Where can we find it? Yeah, it's it's. Uh, I bought it on Amazon just a few years ago. It's uh, Susan McGoffin. I'm trying in the back of the book. There's a list there, of resources. Okay, so we can yeah, find on the it. Santa Fe Trail and into Mexico. So we can find Thanks, it then Jay. through the through the through the book, your book, with uh, yeah, yep, awesome. God, that's just a. I read that and I was like, man, because I've Ben's Fort is on my go-to. Um, you know, I think the bad thing about traveling, I think anybody that travel, I travel by car and I travel between Arizona and Colorado Springs quite a bit. And so you take the twenty-five, and then I didn't even know Ben's Fort was out there. I'm like, what? Driven back and forth. I'm like, holy cow! I got to go out there. Um, so it your is book, well worth the visit. What's that? It is well worth the visit. I know. It. I've uh, I've visited dozens and dozens of these fortifications from Texas to Canada, and so I've I've really enjoyed going to visit some of the reconstructed fortifications, some of the historic sites, and even some of the locations where the forts are no longer there. And so, it, you can really kind of contemplate when you're reading these primary sources and and uh, visiting the places on site, the connection of this human and physical geography. You just And you just listen to Jeff tell this wonderful story of Susan, and um, you can see how how well he incorporates the human dimension into the, these elements. So great. So Jeff, he brings up a point about all the forts, Canada to, to Texas. How many forts were there, do you know? And how many remain? <laughs> I, uh, Jay would answer, could answer that question better than me. Oh, okay. And, and you know, I haven't, we've got the site guide in the back of the book, and I haven't gone through the count, but on most of those forts, if they still exist, I think there's a note that says they've been either reconstructed or there's a historical marker of the location. Uh, so the site guide at the back of the book could answer that question, and Jay can answer it probably better than me. But, but I, I'm sorry, I, I just don't know. That's okay. And I haven't counted them all up either. Um, there's, there's no doubt hundreds that um, we talk about and, and mention of the ones that have been reconstructed or repurposed or still in operation. Um, I would guess there's probably in the neighborhood of thirty or so from uh, the region we're looking at. So that's just a a guide. So then let me ask you, Jeff. I'm sorry, go ahead. One of the challenges with that is the same fort was sometimes built in three different locations within, sometimes within a few hundred yards. They figured out, oh, this river floods. They build a fort immediately, and then they find out next spring the river floods through that area, and it's washed out. So they'd have to relocate, and then they might find a better spot a year later, and they'd relocate 100 yards or a half mile away. And so it's the same fort that's been built 
four times and then other forts are named this and then they rename it that and then they rename it you know another name and so even if you could count the number of forts it still would be kind of a fuzzy question to know because some forts were used multiple times and sometimes the same fort had three or four or five names and as Jeff mentioned, we, we also had a chapter on the indigenous fortifications, which is one of the unique aspects of the book. It's not found in other books about forts. <laughs> and so um, there are hundreds and hundreds of indigenous fortifications of which we only know a fraction due to archaeological studies. And um, and so the, the ones we highlight are are well-known archaeological sites or historic sites that we could could flesh out the information about. So between indigenous, um, British, French, Spanish, Mexican, American, uh, Canadian, you go down the list, there's, there's just so many different possibilities. And we couldn't, of course, do every single one. So we had to pick and choose some that we could tell some compelling stories about and were representative examples of the, the places that we were talking about. Well, if you're wondering who we're talking to, we have two distinguished gentlemen. They're both researchers and writers. Um, we're talking uh, to Jay Buckley and Jeff Noakes. Um, you go by Jeffrey or Jeff? I go by Jeff. Okay. <laughs> I want to make sure. I don't want to meet you in Utah one day and you're like, you said my name wrong. We're having it out. Um, so Jeff uh, uh, Noakes and Jay Buckley have written a book called The Great Plains Forts. It's part of the Great Plains series. You can find it on Amazon. Very easy to find on Amazon. If you go into Amazon search and write Great Plains, um, it comes up Great Plains Buckley, B-U-C-K-L-E-Y. You'll be able to find it really easy. Uh, it's got a beautiful cover on the front, and uh, if you look at the podcast, you'll actually see the cover of the book on the podcast. So if you're not buying on Amazon, you can go to Bookseller Near You. On Amazon, it sells for seventeen ninety five, <clears throat> two hundred and fifty six pages. Um, Stu Bison Books Publishing, and then of course we want to thank. I want to thank my good friend uh, uh, Sarah over at University of Nebraska Press, Sarah Key. Um, she's very helpful and very kind. And uh, she's very helpful to me for getting these wonderful writers and historians on these podcasts. Between the both of you, I don't know who would answer the question both, so I'll throw it out. You guys decide. You fight it out. Um, researching. When I talk to researchers and historians and they're talking about a specific place, like a city, a town, a building, or whatever, many times the the history of that location is located in <clears throat> county archives, city archives, town archives, whatever, vill village archives, however it is. I would assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, and I hope you do, um, that there really were no archives or were there about the forts because they were out in the, so far away out in the middle of nowhere. What, what was the research? How did you find out about them? the locations, the history, how they were built, how they were moved. How did you guys find out about it? I'm waiting for well, somebody. I'll, who, I'll who jump in. This both? is Jay. Um, I think 
Jeff pointed out that one of the ways to come at forts is to see the reminiscences and the and the journals and writings that visitors and uh, occupants and inhabitants had written about those locations. And so that's one of the best primary sources is to go to people who were actually involved in some fashion with that. In some cases, we had journals and diaries of those who constructed the forts. So we had a little more detail on what the parameters were and how many bastions and how how big a footprint it was and things like that. Um, in other cases, there have been books that have been written about individual forts or journal articles. And so we were able to look at those and also see the primary resources that were available for each of those locations. Um, there have been some archaeological digs on uh, indigenous fortifications as well as some of the historic sites and historic forts that are no longer extant. Uh, and so that's helpful. And of course, many of the forts that were reconstructed, um, they also tried to follow similar footprints and patterns uh, when they did the reconstructions so that the, the that they look similar to the ones that were part of historic times. So it's a little combination of both, both the, um, using archival records, uh, primary sources, and also gleaning from secondary sources to see what primary sources they used. So it's a combination of all three. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know if you went, you know, down into a county vault, you know, and you're down deep and it's musty and the, water you're knee deep in water and you're pulling records out i didn't know if it was something like that <laughs> the archives don't want water at all <laughs> oh, I know. i've heard guys but there are plenty of musty uh archives that we've been to for sure <laughs> that's why because i've had i've talked to researchers and they're like oh it's it's dark and it's forgot oh, who's going to look at 1800s history unfortunately it's there's a lot of people doing it every day um the forts, as you mentioned, were they um, were up and down from Canada to Texas. Did the construction stay the same? I would assume forts near heavy trees and lumber were constructed out of wood, uh, maybe trees. And then what happens when these got into the Great Plains and there was no trees? What was was the construction the same? The construction different? Well, the, the construction was very different based on the resources that were available. And even in the areas where that were forested, there were different styles of construction uh, in different locations in different times. There were some forts on the plains that were uh, just, in fact, I can't remember the name of the fort. It was made out of sod. And within two or three years, you can tell that a fort had ever been there. The, the land had just reclaimed it. There were some forts that were built out of stone, some military forts where they they uh, carved stones and constructed the buildings out of stone. And so you're and there are a lot of adobe in the areas where there were fewer uh, tree resources and some um, started out in one format, maybe a wood frame and then later were converted into adobe so yeah you're right there just was a lot of differences based on the resources of the area another interesting fact of why it's hard to find some of the earliest evidences of the forts is that quite a few 
are now within the parameters of cities and towns uh, throughout the plains. For example, I just got back from Winnipeg and uh, visited the site of Upper Fort Gary, which images on the the front of the book. And um, that's the kind of downtown Winnipeg. So right now they have a a Fort Gary motel that is on the, the site. And then they've retained um, a bit of the gate is kind of a historical remembrance of where that site is. And then the lower Fort Gary, which is about 20 miles away, um, it's an exact replica almost of upper Fort Gary. And so that one is there and you can see it and you can see um, all of the details of it and things like that. And so it's kind of interesting to to think about um, all of the places that are now um, cities that started out as, as forts. I, I, I should mention, too, that some, no, some of the forts were built with fortifications, like you think of them as forts with a, a picket around them and, and – uh, but others that we call them forts, but they wouldn't look like what you imagine a fort to be. They might just be a, a single cabin or a couple of cabins or um, because they were trading posts more than they were intended to be fortifications. And so not only were, were the building materials different, but the style of architecture. I mean, some were heavily fortified and others uh You'd look at it and just call it a cabin today if you were to, to see the site. Mm. There, there's a fort that I, I go to maybe once or twice a year. Um, it is not even really on the Great Plains, and it's not part of the part of your book. But I'm amazed at the construction and how they did it, which is Cove Fort uh, that is along mm-hmm. the I-15. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's beautiful. And I look at it. And I, I, if you look around and you, and you look at the surrounding area and you're like, where did the st- stone come from and where did they quarry it and how did they build it? And it's in the middle of nowhere. And it was, it was, a um, a church through the church. And, um, and so, you know, it's beautiful, um, co fort. If you ever get a chance to see, if you want to see a, a fort that has nothing to do with the Great Plains, as you were talking about the construction, but if you want to see what dedication and uh, and faith can do, one of them is Cove Fort. And but you just look at the the construction of it, and I'm like, my gosh, where does where does where did he get the brick or the brick but the rock and and how did he build it? So I think about that in your book. You know, how did they? They were very resourceful to the area. Um, go ahead. Yeah, that fort you're mentioning, Cove Fort, you look at those carved stones that are yes. one and a half to two feet wide. I mean, it, it took a lot of effort to to carve and haul and, and piece that together, but man, it's permanent. <laughs> they didn't have to rebuild that one because it was so well made the first time. Right. The ones that, that Jeff was making making note of um you have the full gamut of those that just started out as you know lean-tos or cabins to be involved in trade all the way to ones that um were were more resources and more labor was required to build them and so they would have you know 15 to 18 foot sharpened palisades around them they would have bastions on two of the ends to 
provide line of fire down all four walls. Um, they would have a huge entry gate. Um, there would be a, an officer's quarters and uh, workers' quarters and the uh, storage facilities and all the different things. So you have just a, a wide variety of possibilities from you know, a simple trading establishment to a full-fledged, you know, mini city uh, that was operating as a emporium of trade. So it's kind of fun to think of all of the diversity and complexity of the different locations. And even with the indigenous ones, um, we we found fortified villages like those of the Nandan, Hidatsa, and Arikaras, where they would have palisades and moats and uh, defensive structures around their communities because they were getting attacked by their neighbors. Uh, And then there would also be raiding parties that would go out and they would construct temporary fortifications so that they would have kind of a launching point for their raid against another nation. Um, And then we have um, even archaeological records from 1000 AD where they're building huge redoubts in central Wyoming um, trying to find places to fortify themselves from from other native attackers and so it was kind of interesting for me as a historian who usually deals in the 18th and 19th uh, centuries to write on uh, a chapter that involved even prehistoric elements that that show that fortifications have been built by every single group of people who've ever lived on the plains. And and that's kind of uh, sobering and humbling and and makes you appreciate uh, the ingenuity and efforts of all of these different folks. When, when this is going to be a completely different question, when you wrote your, because I was thinking about it as you were talking, when you wrote your book, the two of you, you were researching, were you researching together every chapter or did one of you say I'll do the back end of the book and you do the front end of the book how was your research did you do it together or did you do it separately either one of you well when we first uh, when we first laid out the themes and the chapters there were some obvious chapters that Jay was going to write because they were just right, you know, right into his, the sweet spot of his research, the chapter on the fur trade era and on the indigenous fortifications. It was obvious he was going to take the first pop of those chapters. And then the other chapters we, we uh, kind of divvied up and then each of us would write a first draft of that chapter. And then we'd share those those chapters with each other and uh, to be honest with you jay is is the stronger historian and so he would go through and and add details and revise maybe some of the factual uh errors that that i wrote and and i would take a look at his work and maybe suggest uh, things to try to improve his the writing more than the history and he would suggest things to improve my writing as well and it it really you know we're pretty humble about trying to make this the best that we could we could and so appreciated the feedback that we got from each other and but that's kind of how the process went is we we each took a first pop at each at certain chapters and then we shared those chapters and and made either minor or major revisions once we got the chapters from each other. 
So if you're wondering who we're talking, we also added into each other's as well. So we could, we could add some, some additional human interest insights and stories. And, and that's something that just really skilled at. So I really appreciate his collaboration. So we're talking about the great Plains forts book through university of Nebraska press. You can find it on Amazon for 1795, 256 pages published through Bison Books Publishing. And again, uh, I want to thank uh, our friend Sarah Key over at University of Nebraska Press. Knowing then that the two of you collaborated in your writing style, but not writing style, but I mean in the history, Jeff, do you have a, a part of the book that you wrote or that researched and went into the book that was your most favorite? Or was maybe something that was most impactful that you, from a takeaway side, that because I'm going to ask the same question of you, Jay, which is, was there a part of your book that was most impactful that when you got done with it, you were like, wow, like, holy cow, that is, is crazy. My favorite chapter of the book is on the Canadian prairies, uh, force but uh, just because i think there was so much that i learned about that process that i didn't know before the the, the fort building through the the era but the but i didn't have like a wow experience with that but the wow experience for me came when i was re- reading uh, henry miriam's journals and so one of the chapters we started with the story of uh, henry miriam and his wife and uh, they, he was traveling from one fort to another in Texas and with his wife and baby. And they pitched their tents for the evening at a, the confluence of two streams. And in the night, just as they were going to bed, they heard a storm approaching. And uh, as he finally, the storm hit and he could tell it was bad, he got up and went out and looked and the rivers were starting to flood. And just about the time he peeked out of the tent, the water was reaching the tent, the tent doors. And by the time he could get his wife and baby awake and loaded into a carriage, the water was rushing by them. And he got swept away, was able to regain his footing, and he made it out of the flood. But his wife's carriage rolled into the water and his wife and baby disappeared. Yes. And they, they, uh, got her she passed away they pulled her out the next morning and a couple of days later they found his little one-year-old baby and uh, about four miles from where she'd been washed down the stream so there was a funeral at one of the forts and her two her, her his wife and baby were buried there at that fort and then uh several years later he met a woman in Mexico who reminded him of his wife and they began to court and soon uh, they were married in a different fort where he was then stationed. But uh, it was just a, a sad and a sweet story. Um, at, but forts are at the center of, or maybe not the center, but on the sidelines of the whole story of the of the Great Plains experience. And so it was just, as I read through his journal, you know, I, I, I read the story of his wife passing and thought, you know, this is a great connection to a fort. 
And then as I continued and found that he was married in another fort, I thought, wow, this, it just kind of comes full circle with uh, his connection to the forts. So that was probably one of the wow experiences for me. So, and, so you just, and I just me, wanted to let um, you know, Jay, go you've, got about, you've got about, about 10 minutes. Don't okay. burn it off. Um, I just wanted to um, build on that. I, I probably learned the most in writing the chapter on the indigenous fortifications because I hadn't, I hadn't considered that there were so many and that they stretched all the way from Canada to Texas and to look at each different group of indigenous people and the, um, how they were trying to protect themselves from, um, from newcomers as they were um, moving out onto the plains. That was, that was a, something that was exciting and new. Um, it also was an opportunity to reflect on things I'd written about in the past. I, I did my master's thesis on Robert Campbell, um, who was the architect of what became Fort Laramie. Um, and so it enabled, it enabled me to kind of think back on some of my past research and experiences with Lewis and Clark and fur traders and trappers and, um, and to, actually build out those those stories about um, Campbell and Sublette and their challenge of the American Fur Company. And so as we write about um, those overland emporiums and the fur trade uh, sites, it was kind of cool to think about all of the people, uh, all the diversity of different folks who were involved in those experiences and and the positive things and the negative things, the the influence that indigenous people had on the locations of the forts where they would uh, suggest sites to people like uh, Jim Beckworth, an African-American trapper and trader who became part of the Crow Nation. And um, just these experiences that are kind of unexpected that, um, you know, just like the story that, that Jeff told of uh, the fellow named Miriam and so this is it was just kind of fun to both have new things come to light but also to reinterpret and reflect and and rework some things that I've worked on in the past so it's kind of um, a bit of serendipity when it all came together so a little bit of time left goes by fast already I'm going to ask a question because I think it would pertain here. And my regular listeners know it's called the time machine question. And I'm going to ask each of you, both of you, the same question. If you could go back into time and go to any fort that you researched from together, from Canada all the way to Texas, go to any fort, go back in time, see it, not get involved in day-to-day, Change his, you can't change history. It's almost like a, a back to the future question. Go to any <laughs> fort that you've written about or researched. Which fort would you go to and why? Jeff, what would, which fort would you go to and why? Oh, I think I'd like to go to Bent's Fort. Um, it, it just seems like it stands out so much from the, the, you know, the wild prairies around it. And it was just such a landmark on the Santa Fe Trail. And I think I'd have liked to have been there in that 
that same year that Susan McGoffin arrived as the as the American troops were gathering in the to wage a war against Mexico, I just think it would have been uh, just a wild, crazy kind of time with a lot of action going on. And and to see that fort and that little uh, little bit of civilization out in the middle of of the wilderness, I think would have been really fascinating for me to to see. So I think that out of the force, I think that's the one that I was most excited to learn about. What about you, Jay? Well, that's really hard to choose because I have so many favorites. But since I'm from Wyoming, I better pick a Wyoming fort. Um, better. I'm gonna pick fort. I'm gonna pick Fort Laramie, mm. and the reason for that is it's one of the forts that has a the longest life through the most different um, epics in American history. Starts out in the 1830s as a fur trade fort built by Campbell and Sublette. It's uh, purchased by the American Fur Company. They rename it Fort John. They reconstructed an adobe. Then the army purchases it for $4,000 in 1849. It becomes a military fort. Expands greatly in the 50s, where there's some major treaties there, the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1851. Then the 1860s, it expands exponentially, and there's a massive treaty of Fort Laramie in 1868. It's part of the Indian Wars of the 1860s, and then all the way through until um, pretty much the 20th century. So just to be a fly on the wall at Fort Laramie to see the entire 19th century go by i think would have been pretty amazing with with all the immigrants and indigenous people and fur traders that were were part of that history fair enough do do either one of you and you can answer this one individually have anything that you're working on for the future is there something coming out in 2024 2025 that you're working on that you could share Well, I'm working on a book about the sheep industry in um, Utah and the Intermountain West. And so that'll be one of my next books that's coming out in a couple of years. What about you, Jeff? Uh, my next project will probably be uh, something related to history teaching. Um, I've had a couple opportunities the last two years to go with students to uh, Tanzania. We hiked Kilimanjaro and did some other things there. And so I'm going to probably do something related to that on experiential learning. So probably take a break from history, history for a minute and focus on teaching and then hopefully have another project with Jay somewhere down the road here. Well, yeah, I, I think we'd like that because quite honestly, you're kind of messing around a little bit and, and you're fooling around and having fun. <laughs> And we're tired of it, so we're going to watch you guys to get another book together. <laughs> I always tell the the writer, I'm like, I talked to your wife, and she's she's you're bugging her, and uh, she wants you out doing something. Um, very cool. We got about five minutes. I'm going to push this one right to the edge. Is there something about each of you, each one of you, and you think about this one, not a history question, that is unique to you that maybe your family, you know, only family knows and close friends. For example, last year I had a writer say that his favorite food was um, fried mushrooms and he would drive an hour away to this little restaurant in the middle of Texas just to have fried mushrooms with ranch dressing. 
I've had some people say that, um, <laughs> all sorts of stuff, weird stuff. Is there something about you that, um, a food or a place or a cookie or a candy or, uh, something about you that, um, only your family knows that, uh, you could share with the public so that our listeners might know a little more about you? I'm excited to hear Jay respond to this question first. <laughs> Just buying some more time. Yeah. Um, I, I'm uh, very involved in the Lewis and Clark National uh, Trail and uh, have been the president of the National Lewis and Clark Organization. And so every year we go to sites along the trail and I just, I love being out in the West and you talked about your visits to Cove Ford and places in Southern Utah and Arizona and other things. And I feel that same joy when I'm, when I'm out experiencing history and thinking about the things that went in those places when I'm driving there and visiting there. So I'd love taking people there and, and going to those locations myself because I think there's something tangible that comes alive in history when you actually visit the sites that, that mm-hmm. is really compelling. What about you, Jeff? All right. So a few years ago, I watched the secret life of Walter Mitty. Oh. And I thought <laughs> I, I need to do put more adventure into my life. And so each May I try to do something that's, uh, an, an adventure. And so a few years ago, I floated the uh, Grand Canyon in one man raft and, and I've hiked Kilimanjaro the last two Mays. And this May, probably do some backpacking down at Bears Ears. Uh, we'll see how long my wife will let me <laughs> keep playing. Like you can't that. leave your Colorado River story there, Jeff. You have to tell them the rest. Uh, I had, I, I, I thought I was going to die at one point on the Colorado. And that's not a, um, any kind of hyperbole. <laughs> it was a great adventure. I wouldn't do it again. <laughs> well, I, we're gonna have to do it. We're gonna have to come back on that podcast. We're gonna have to do a part two because it's not because it, there's there's a story built in there because Jay's laughing too much that you're not telling the whole truth, and we want the we want the whole truth or nothing but the truth. So we'll we'll grab that one. No, the reason I ask is because like I've shared this one before, and you guys will be listening and be like, "That's disgusting." Um, you know, the the Wendy's has the frosty. Mm-hmm. Um. I like dipping my French fries into the frosty, a vanilla frosty. Um, and, of course, and people will say that's disgusting. Well, it, there's that's a couple. Delicious. Of yeah, I, it, there's some blending that's in there between the two that make it a darn good thing. It's like uh, when I come to Utah and I get fry sauce. Now the fry sauce could be, and it's a, and if you guys are if you're listening across the country or somewhere else, fry sauce is a is a Utah thing. Everywhere you go, the minute you sit down in Red Robin, boom, fry sauce shows up. Um, <laughs> but Frosties um, is one of them. And uh, if you ever happen to be in St. George, anybody who's listening, please go by Larson's Frost Stop. Larson's Frost Stop. Um, and uh, it's over by the Tabernacle. And uh, Larson's Frost Stop. They make this thing. It's called a tropical. I don't know exactly what they make, but they they pack ice around it, like like uh, shaved ice, and then inside a cup, and then they put a core hole. They they pull the center out of the ice. They save it and they fill the inside with homemade vanilla ice cream. 
Then they take that ice that they pulled out and they cap it on a round cap. And then they fill the ice with any like flavoring, like cherry flavoring or grape flavoring, whatever it is. For mine, it's cherry. So you get the cherry icy around homemade vanilla ice cream. I've died and gone to heaven many, many times in St. <laughs> George. And I'm like, holy cow, where did this come from? This should be everywhere. Well, thankfully, here in Arizona, we have a uh, a location called Bahama Mamas. And um, it's over by the Mesa Temple. And, uh, in fact, it's really close to the Mesa Temple. So you can come out of church and go right to the Bahama Mamas. And they've developed the same thing. So uh, whenever I need a little slice of heaven... Um, here in Arizona, I can go. So that's my, my crazy nutty is frosty with, with, uh, French fries. Well, again, if you're wondering who we're talking to and, and maybe I'll con- we'll convince them to come back to talk some more about their book. Uh, it's the Great Plains Fort. You can find it at booksellers near you. Uh, it is out now. Uh, you can go to Amazon. I just looked at Amazon just moments ago and said you can get this book before Christmas if you want to put it under the Christmas tree. Uh, you can find it at Amazon for seventeen ninety five. It's two hundred fifty six pages of solid. You heard it right here. Researched history, and uh, through Bison Books Publishing again. I want to thank our mutual friend Sarah Key at University of Nebraska Press uh, for connecting. You can find uh, where can we find you if they wanted to actually? Do you have a Facebook <clears throat> page, or is it just better to um, read the book, or or if they had questions about it, how could they? Publicly, I don't want you to put your phone number out or something, but are you anywhere publicly? I have a Amazon page, and I also have, uh, both of us have pages at Brigham Young University, so people can just Google us and get information there. There you go. They are Googleable. I look Googleable. Um, I just made it up. <laughs> it's so dumb. Um, but I did actually Google their names when I was looking to researched their background and found out that holy cow i can't waste that amount of paper on uh on what jay's got going on because he's there's a lot there so if you want to find out about them do google their names they've got a lot going on um i appreciate them a bunch it took a long time to get here uh to get this podcast together and it was definitely well worth it um again my friends at tombstone epitaph at tombstoneepitaph.com and the Wild West History Association at wildwesthistory.com. And a shout-out to my friend Dave Guyton. He runs the Instagram page for uh, Wild West History Association, and he does a great job at that. So if you're an Instagram person, please go check out the WWHA and my friend Dave Guyton. As always, I appreciate you guys a bunch. You can find me everywhere on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Podcast, uh, Podbean, wherever. Please leave a rating and review. Nobody's left a review yet, but if you do, it definitely helps with uh, distribution. Uh, You can find my podcast on iTunes through education because I do have an education mark. And it is clean, which means you can listen to all of my podcasts with family members. You won't have to worry about anything said that you might, as a parent, you might have to worry about. Uh, We don't have any of that here because it's a clean rating, and I appreciate uh, all of you a bunch. And, And again, thanks to Jeff and Jay for coming on and talking about their book, Great Plains Forts. As always, I appreciate you guys. Thank you so much. Until next time, safe travels, and we'll see you soon.